from Hammer Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Ken Croswell will join us to discuss the lives of galaxies. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, many of us look up at the night sky and marvel at the vast numbers of stars in the universe, but realizing the incredible processes that lead to the formation of stars and their eventual demise is something of a mystery. Well, what is the life of a star? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Ken Croswell. Dr. Croswell is an astronomer and author of numerous books on astronomy, including The Alchemy of the Heavens, Magnificent Universe, and Ten Worlds. His latest release, The Lives of Stars, explores the amazing life of stars for a general audience. Uh, Dr. Croswell, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. I'm very glad to be here. Well, certainly a pleasure. And uh, we had you on the program a couple years ago for your book, Ten Worlds, and we're glad to have you back on the program for uh, The Lives of Stars. Yes, very glad to be here. I love to talk about astronomy. All right. Uh, was there a natural progression from Ten Worlds to uh, all the stars that uh, exist? Yes, indeed. A lot of us, when we get started in astronomy, we first learn about the planets. And Ten Worlds is really all about the solar system, the ten largest worlds that go around the sun, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and so forth. And then as you move outward from our solar system, you encounter other stars, such as Alpha Centauri and so forth. And so I think doing a book on stars in general uh, was a very logical progression from doing a book on the solar system. Who is this particular book geared towards? I would say it's geared toward anyone who uh, is curious about astronomy and wants a simple introduction. It's actually appropriate for children, you know, I'd say over the age of nine, but also for adults who want a good beginning to astronomy. And on top of all that, as you can see for yourself, it's a very beautiful book. We went to a lot of work getting these uh, all these color images to look their very best. So in many cases, the published image in the book is actually the very best published image that exists. So anyone who wants a beautiful introduction to stellar astronomy should uh, take a look at the lives of stars. Well, I mean, the images in the book are certainly beautiful. I'm curious, how do you collect them? Um, Well, I knew which objects are the most important in astronomy, and then I sought out getting the very best images. And then I asked a renowned astrophotographer by the name of Tony Hellas to digitally reprocess nearly all the images to bring out the very best uh, sharpness and color. He actually takes his own photographs, and in fact his photographs are so good that they have been mistaken for images from the Hubble Space Telescope. He, for example, has a wonderful image that I used in my book Magnificent Universe of the Andromeda Galaxy. And I've shown that photograph to people, and they swear they're looking at a Hubble image. But in fact, it's a backyard astronomer with his telescope and real ability to make images. And so I asked him to take all of these images that I gathered for the book, and many of them are from NASA, and to digitally reprocess them so that they look their very best. And then I worked very closely with the publisher to uh, see that they come out in the final book as good as possible. And are the colors also uh, chosen to make them the most colorful that they can be? Well, most of the colors are actually real. For example, the red colors that you see in some of the images, like the Lagoon Nebula and the Cone Nebula and the Horsehead Nebula, those are actually real colors. 
and they arise from ionized hydrogen, that is hydrogen that has been stripped of its electron. As the electron rejoins the proton in the hydrogen atom, it can give off red light, and that's the red glow that you see in a lot of these images, such as the Lagoon Nebula. So the colors are real in, in most cases. If they're not real, I try to take pains to say they're not real. So, for example, the, the very famous Hubble image of the star pillars, the Eagle Nebula, which appears on page 12 of my book, the colors there are actually not real, but at the very bottom of that photograph I say, color is not true, so don't believe these colors. <laughs> well, at the very least, the pictures themselves would have anybody interested in the life of a star, but what do we have to learn from how a star is born and how it eventually lives and then dies? Well, we, of course, all owe our lives to uh, one particular star, namely the sun. I mean, if the sun weren't there, the Earth would be cold and frozen and we wouldn't be here. But a lot of people don't realize that we don't just need the sun. We actually need the stars that came long before the sun because we're made of elements that were created in stars that lived billions of years ago. The, the oxygen we breathe, the iron in our blood, most of these elements were made by the stars in one way or another. And so it's, it's logical to want to know, you know, given that we're so intimately connected to the stars, that every day we depend on one particular star, namely the sun, and in the distant past we owed our lives to the creation of the elements by the stars. I think it's natural for us to try to figure out how stars are born, how they live, and how they ultimately die. And it's, it's a fascinating story. It's a complicated story, but it's a fascinating story. It involves all sorts of beautiful objects, you know, nebulae, red giants, white dwarfs, neutron stars, black holes, supernova explosions, uh, lots of fascinating things out there in the sky. Hmm. Well, maybe we should start at the beginning then. How is a star born? Well, a star is born in the cold of space in these beautiful clouds of gas and dust called nebulae. That's the Latin word for a cloud. You know, like the Orion Nebula, for example, the Lagoon Nebula, the, those star pillars I was mentioning that the Hubble uh, captured back in 1995. And every star owes its life to gravity because uh, what, what happens in these clouds is clumps of material start attracting each other under the force of gravity. So every star actually owes its life to gravity. And as material starts to collapse in on itself in, a, in one of these gas clouds, it starts to get warmer and eventually hotter, and in fact gets so hot that it begins to glow. And at that point, a star is born. And in fact, there's a photograph in The Lives of Stars of the very famous young star, T. Tauri. And that's very, that sort of looks very much like what we think our sun looked like four and a half billion years ago. So even our sun went through this stage of being born under the influence of gravity. And requires enough mass to accumulate and then eventually ignite? Yes, yes. Eventually, the, its center gets so hot that the protons start crashing into each other. As you know, protons are positively charged particles, and they naturally repel each other. But if the temperature at the center of a star is so hot, and this is in fact what's going on at the center of the sun, that the, the high speed with which the protons travel causes them to crash into each other, and you get a nuclear reaction. So right now, uh, the sun, and in fact, most other stars, shine because they're fusing hydrogen into helium, a nuclear reaction that releases a tremendous amount of energy. In your book, you have a somewhat famous diagram, the uh, Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. How does this relate to the stars? Well, the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram is really an amazing thing, and astronomy were better known. It would pro I think the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram would be much better known than it is. I compare it to the periodic table in chemistry. Uh, the periodic table, as everyone knows, arranges the elements in a certain order so that different groups of elements are grouped together. So, for example, uh, in the final column of the periodic table, you have the noble gases, 
which uh, are all arranged together. And likewise, the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram arranges the different types of stars so that they fall into a pattern on this diagram. And in particular, the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram is a plot of a star's luminosity against its color or temperature. And when you make such a plot, you find that the stars group into three principal groups. The most important group are the main sequence stars. This is where the sun is. This is where 95% of all stars in the galaxy are. These are stars that are changing hydrogen into helium at their centers. That's what the sun does, and that's what every other main sequence star in the universe does. And then the second group of stars are the giants and supergiants. When the sun gets much older, it will expand into a giant star. So that's the second type of star. And then the final group of star on the HR diagram are the white dwarfs. These are stars that have approximately the mass of the sun, but they're only the size of the Earth. So they're super dense. A teaspoonful of a white dwarf would weigh tons. Are the three groups related in some way? Do one group can change into the other over the course of its lifetime? Exactly, yes. You start with the main sequence star, uh, like the sun, and then over typically billions of years, they eventually expand into giant stars. And then the giant star will shed its outer atmosphere, revealing the core of that giant star. And that core is actually a white dwarf. And the white dwarf, uh, the nearest white dwarf, is actually just 8.6 light years away in orbit around the bright star Sirius. And then that white dwarf, uh, over time, just slowly fades away because it's not burning fuel the way the sun does. What then are the dwarves and the neutron stars in this particular series of events that occur in the life of a star? Well, black holes are uh, quite exotic. Uh, The sun will never become a black hole. In fact, most stars never become black holes. Black holes arise from stars much more massive than the sun, uh, stars that explode as supernovae. And uh, the outer layers shoot off into space at millions of miles per hour. But the, the core of the star, the center of the star, collapses into something that is so dense and so massive that nothing, not even light, can escape. And in fact, probably the most famous black hole in the galaxy is something called Cygnus X1, the outer part of which radiates X-rays as material from a companion star falls into the black hole. Before this material takes the final plunge into the black hole, it gets heated to such high temperatures that it radiates X-rays. But this, of course, is not the eventual fate of our sun. What is the current age of our sun, and what is its fate? Well, the sun is currently four and a half billion years old, and it's got a long life ahead of itself, which is good news for all of us here on Earth. So we don't have too much to worry about concerning our sun. But its ultimate fate, and this will happen you know, six or seven billion years from now, is to expand into a red giant star, at which point it will swallow the planet Mercury, the innermost planet to the sun. It may or may not swallow Venus. It may or may not swallow the Earth. We don't know. As, as the sun expands, The orbits of the planets Venus and Earth may also expand, so the Earth may possibly avoid incineration in the sun. However, because the sun at that time will be so very bright, shining hundreds of times brighter than it is now, the Earth will be toast unless we move it away from the sun. And then the sun's outer layers will be shed into space, and the center of the sun will be revealed to be a white dwarf. And at that point, the Earth, if it still survives, is going to get very, very cold. So it's going to go from being very, very hot when the sun was very bright as a red giant to being very, very cold when the sun becomes a white dwarf. And then over millions of years and billions of years, the sun as a white dwarf will simply fade and cool and ultimately turn black. So that's the ultimate fate of the sun is to turn into a a fading white dwarf and it will no longer shine the planets that go around it.
But the remnants uh, that's cast off from the Red Giant, that is actually the elements that will go into perhaps forming other planets. Yes, indeed. Uh, the elements that the sun sheds will mix with the other elements that other stars have produced and then gather into these beautiful nebulae that we talked about a few minutes ago, the nebulae that do give birth to new stars. And in fact, that's how the elements that life needs arise. Um, the original universe was made mostly of hydrogen and helium, and you can't make life from those two elements. I mean, helium doesn't make molecules at all, and hydrogen, there's not that much you can do with just hydrogen. Life requires elements like carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, things like that, elements that were all made in the stars in one way or another. So uh, what are some of the more fascinating stars that are out there? Oh, why? To an astronomer, there are... Uh, Every star is fascinating. Um, Betelgeuse in the constellation Orion is a very fascinating star. It's a red supergiant. It's a massive star. Someday it's going to explode. And for all we know, maybe it's already exploded. It's 640 light years from Earth. So if it has exploded in the last 640 years, we wouldn't know about it because that explosion won't yet have reached the Earth. And that star will ultimately become either a black hole or a neutron star after it explodes. But Betelgeuse is a very beautiful star in the constellation Orion. Also in the constellation Orion is another beautiful star, but a blue supergiant called Rigel. Very brilliant star. It's the brightest star. It's the most luminous star within a thousand light years of the sun. And it, too, has the same fate as Betelgeuse. It will someday explode as a supernova. Now, much closer to home than those two stars is another fascinating star system, and that's the Alpha Centauri star system. It is the closest star system to the sun. It's just a little over four light years away. And the reason it's so interesting, aside from being our nearest neighbor, is that it's actually a triple star. It consists of three stars going around each other, and two of those three stars are actually rather similar to the sun. And so there's hope that maybe those stars could have planets, and if planets do exist, that, hey, maybe one of those planets, maybe even more than one of those planets, could have some form of life. Uh, which brings up a very interesting question. What about the search for extracellular planets? Yes, we now know of far more planets going around other stars, what we call extrasolar planets, than go around the sun. We, in fact, know of over 300 planets going around other stars. And these planets are strange worlds in many ways. We, we have not found anything that's really terribly close to an analog to the Earth. Most of the planets that we know about are big planets, similar to Jupiter and Saturn, going around their stars. And these are interesting planets and all, but they're probably not the place to look for life. However, earlier this year, NASA launched the Kepler mission, which is goal is to find Earth-like planets going around sun-like stars. Its mission's gonna last three and a half years, and if all goes well, it's going to be discovering hundreds of Earth-like planets going around sun-like stars. Right now, we don't know of a single Earth-like planet going around a sun-like star, other than, of course, the Earth itself. But uh, if you want a, an Earth-like planet going around some other star, we don't yet know of any such planet. But with the Kepler mission, if it's successful, it's going to find hundreds of these Earth-like planets going around these sun-like stars. And then we can examine those planets and see if maybe they've got atmospheres and oceans and possibly even some form of life. What do you think the prospects are for finding uh, life on another world? I think there is some hope. Now, the life doesn't have to be intelligent for us to find it. Uh, back in 1960, radio astronomers tried to listen to two stars, two nearby stars, Epsilon Eridani and Tau Ceti. And their hope was to find some intelligent life as signaled by radio waves 
because we all know people who do radio are very intelligent, right? And so if you can detect radio waves from uh, in, in another civilization, that would be a sign of intelligent life around either Epsilon Eridani and Tal Seti. Well, needless to say, these astronomers didn't find anything. But you have to remember that for most of the Earth's history, there was no intelligent life on the Earth. And yet, if you viewed the Earth from afar, you could tell that there were some bizarre things happening on the Earth. In particular, the Earth has a lot of oxygen in its air. And oxygen is a very, very reactive element. It's not natural for a planet to have uh, so much oxygen in its air because it, it naturally reacts with the soil. And the only reason that the uh, Earth has so much oxygen in its air is because life puts it there. And so as we discover these Earth-like planets around these sun-like stars as a result of the Kepler mission, we can examine those planets for oxygen in their atmospheres. And that would be a sign that these planets do have some form of life. So I think the prospect for the search is very good. But first, we have to find all those Earth-like planets, and that's what the Kepler mission is going to do. That's very fascinating. You know, we're running slightly out of time. Uh, if you have some final words regarding the book and the life of stars themselves. Well, The Lives of Stars is really uh, perfect for anyone who wants a simple introduction to astronomy. Uh, kids in particular, but also adults who uh, maybe been a little intimidated by the subject but are curious about it and want a simple but beautiful introduction to astronomy. Uh, the new book is called The Lives of Stars. And Dr. Ken Croswell, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on The Grok Science Show. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you. And you were just listening to Dr. Ken Croswell discussing the lives of galaxies. This is the Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned. The stars were so much brighter They dim and die, so why pretend The sky goes on forever It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, what type of star would they be? So, for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they were a star, what kind of star would they be? Dr. Croswell, are you ready to play the game? I'm as ready as I think I'll ever be. <laughs> okay, well, very good. Uh, here we go. Uh, Grokatron 5000, person number one, what type of star would they be? Talk show host Jay Leno. 
Jay Leno. Um, well, I guess I'm, I'm trying to think of a humorous type of star. There are some stars that have some really weird names. Like uh, there's a, there are these two stars in Libra. In fact, they're on the HR diagram in my book called uh, Zubin El Janubi and Zubin El Shamali. So I think that those would be good stars for a comedian, don't you think? Sounds like a good choice to me. All right. Uh, number two is the radio talk show host Rush Limbaugh. Russ Limbo, let's see. Well, a uh, rather large star, don't you think? I, I would say maybe one of these giant stars, like Myra. Myra might be a good star to represent him. Myra's a very large star? It's a very large star. Or Betelgeuse. You know, we were talking about Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is even bigger. You put Betelgeuse at the center of the solar system, it would uh, swallow Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure Rush Limbo is quite that big, but he is big. Uh, number three is the quarterback, Brett Favre. Let's see. Well, I presume a quarterback's going to be... Strong and tough and all that stuff, right? And probably moving through space very fast. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have stars that are moving. See, not all stars participate in the um, same rotation around the galaxy that the sun does. And so we see them uh, moving relative to us very fast. So maybe Captain Star. Captain Stars are moving very fast because it's uh, part of the galactic halo rather than part of the galactic disk. And the galactic halo moves faster uh, than the disk? Well, relative to us, yes, yes. As, from our point of view, um, because we're, we're rotating around at a certain speed, and uh, Captain Star is not really sharing that rotation. So we see it as moving very fast. Well, he certainly moves pretty quick between teams anyway. <laughs> okay. Uh, number four is the uh, real estate mogul Donald Trump. Oh, God. Now, there's somebody I really don't have a high opinion of. Let's see. Well, he's gone bankrupt, what, twice in his life? Uh, a spendthrift star. Like maybe, you know, Rigel. Rigel is emitting all this light. And the thing is, these stars that are born with a lot of mass, you'd think they would live longer than the sun. But in fact, they live much shorter because they burn through it so very fast. So why don't we say Rigel for Donald Trump? Candle that burns twice as bright burns half as long, right? <laughs> or something like <laughs> that. <laughs> all right. And finally, number five, uh, what type of star would they be? Uh, it's the president of the United States, Barack Obama. Well, uh, let's well, actually, I know there are a lot of stars out there that vary in brightness. Sometimes they're bright, sometimes they're dim. For example, uh, Delta Cephei is a star that, you know, sometimes it's bright, sometimes it's dim, you know. Last year, Barack Obama was saying that people without health insurance would not be forced to get it. This year, he's saying the exact opposite. And who knows what he'll say next year. So I would say Delta Cephei for the President of the United States. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Croslow, I want to thank you very much for uh, sticking around playing our game, the Grokotron 5000, and, of course, talking about your new book, which is called The Lives of Stars. Dr. Croswell, thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.